All right, so we are winding down our series looking at Genesis. We have a few weeks left. And the challenge of Genesis, since that it's in narrative form, which means it's in story form, is there are a lot of chapters, and there's this tension I have. Either I break it up kind of thought by thought, and we go through the story, and we keep the storiness of it together, and that takes like an hour. Or I just give you three points, and I try to break it up the best I can, and we kind of lose the storiness of the story of Joseph. Um, And so what I'd like to do tonight is to try to do both and. Let's try to keep the story intact. Because can I tell you something? If you haven't read Genesis 37 through 50 just in one sitting, just as a story, I really encourage you to do it. It's a, it's a really great story. Um, I mean, if you think about all the movie plots you see, how many movie plots do you see with favoritism and siblings, the story from rags to riches, um, the story to like happy endings, like so many of the plots I feel like I see in movies come straight out of the Bible. And so um, really encourage you to read the story Get all of it. Um, matter of fact, for Easter Sunday, we didn't have youth group, but I went on my, you know, Roku home screen on my TV, and we buy our movies on Voodoo, which is weird, but weird name for a thing. And uh, and I bought this old series made by TNT, um, and it was a three-hour film broken into two parts with the story of Joseph. And the reason why I like it is because they are so um, committed to saying the story exactly as it happens. And so really, it's a great movie. I, I almost thought about playing part of it tonight, but I couldn't figure out how to like get Voodoo to work on the TV, whatever. But I watched three hours. I made my wife suffer through it because she was like, this is great, but this is not really what I imagine my night would look like. But um, I love the story of Joseph. I just, I love it. And so... Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to try to look a little bit um, at the story, but here's also what I want to do, is kind of zoom in on a few passages and see kind of some of the practical lessons that the story of Joseph presents for us. So there's a kind of a zoom out picture, I guess in essence 30,000 feet, but we can also kind of come down to earth and see some really practical things for us. So um, before I begin, let me just pray for us. And we'll kind of take a look at the story of Joseph. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, that it's alive and it speaks. And God, um, I just thank you that you brought these students here. And Father, I just pray that you would encourage their hearts, God, especially those words we just sang, that you are sovereign over us. God, um, help us to know that you are in charge, you are in control, you reign, God. And so ultimately, Lord, we know that it is only you who calls us to yourself. And so we pray, Lord, with humble hearts that your spirit would be at work in this text and that our time in it would be beneficial and for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a sad reality to say, but a reality nonetheless, that it's really hard to keep track of all the tragedies that happen in our country in our world. I mean, um, I remember the first mass shooting I ever heard of was Columbine High School, and that one stuck in your head quite a bit. It was 
to the fourth grade when that happened. And I remember our teacher spent like three hours giving us time to talk and process about it. And then a few others happened, and it's kind of like a delay. And then it kind of seemed like just shooting after shooting after shooting, whether it be at a school, whether it be at a movie theater, whether it be at a concert, whether it be at a restaurant or a nightclub. He just got this, this impression like, man, you can't go anywhere without feeling you got to be on edge. Bombings in Sri Lanka, terrorist attacks. It just, the world we live in is full of violence and chaos and disorder. And really, what we can actually just say is that the world we live in is full of evil. It's full of evil. I know it's probably true for most of us that we imagine and we think of evil as being that thing outside of us, right? Um, because we look at the horrible atrocities done to humans, whether that be by sexual trafficking or um, mass murdering people, genocide, all those things, extortion. And we think to ourselves, I would never do something like that. I would never do something like that. And the bottom line is, is whether or not we do these great big sins, the problem does lie in all of us and none of us love our neighbor as ourselves. That really, if we really want to compare, um, there's not much to compare because none of us can stand innocent over the fact that we don't love our neighbor well. And so that is something that's been really hard for Christians to wrestle with. If there's an all-powerful God and he loves us, why doesn't he spare us from bad things happening? And so one of my favorite illustrations um, is given by um, an apologist who's someone who defends the faith. His name is Ravi Zacharias, and he talks about a story of um, there's a farmer, and one day a bunch of wild horses came, and, and they came into his field. And, and his neighbor came up to him and said, man, what good luck it is it is that you had all these wild horses just randomly show up in your, in your fence. And the man replied, what do I know of these things? Well, a few days later, this man's son was out trying to train one of these wild horses, and one of the horses kicked him and broke his leg pretty severely. And his friend came to him and said, man, what bad luck is it that these horses came and broke your son's leg? Well, a few weeks later, a rival gang comes in the area recruiting some young men, and goes to this man's house but sees that his son has a broken leg and passes by. And his neighbor says, man, what good luck is it that, that these horses showed up and broke your son's leg and he didn't get picked up for the gang? He's like, what do I know of these things, right? And the story kind of goes on and on and on. And his point is kind of saying, like, none of us really know how it's going to work out in the end. None of us really know the end of the story. None of us really can control what's going to happen next. And so the kind of the moral of the story is, is to not be someone who makes quick judgments, but to trust in God that he is in control. And so what I want to do really quick is I just want to summarize the whole story of Joseph for you. Okay, I want to give you three things, the story of Joseph, and then we'll kind of look a little bit at the story. Here it is. If you want the whole story of Joseph, I'll give it to you. Three things. One, God is sovereign. Two, we need to be saved. Three, God provides a savior. God is sovereign. We need saving. God provides a savior. That is, in essence, the whole story of Joseph. Last time we talked about Joseph, he, um, 
was working in Potiphar's house, and he was on the rise, and then he was accused unjustly of a crime, and he was thrown into prison. But even in prison, we were told in the passage that the Lord was with Joseph, that God was kind of helping him even in prison be on the rise. Now, we didn't talk about this, but in prison, here's what happens. Two men come to Joseph, and they both have a dream. And both of them are thrown in prison until something kind of get worked out in Pharaoh's house. One of them was the cupbearer of Pharaoh, and one of them was the chief baker. Okay? Now, they both come to Joseph, and they say, hey, I had this dream. Interpret it for me. Now, to the cupbearer, he says, hey, good news, man. In seven days, you're going to be restored into Pharaoh's household. He's going to take you back, and your life is going to be, you're going to be killing it. To the chief baker, though, he's like, in three days, they're going to hang you, and birds are going to come eat from your dead carcass. He didn't like that, so he had Joseph punished, but here's what happened. Exactly as Joseph said for both the chief cupbearer and for the chief baker, happened. And Joseph told his cupbearer, he's like, yo, bro, don't forget about your boy. Like, I hooked you up. I, I gave you. And so... Here's what happens. Do me a favor. Go ahead and look down. Chapter. Um, 40. Okay. Chapter 40. The very end. Verse 20 says this. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast of all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Look at this, though. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's keep reading a little bit, though. 41.1. After two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So, in essence, Joseph's like, hey, man, don't forget about me. That dude was just so ready to go live the high life again. He's like, peace, right? And so for two years, Joseph continued to be in prison. Now, let's just think for a second about Joseph's life. Okay, not only did he have the most horrible thing happen to him by his own siblings being sold into slavery and thrown into a pit, kind of unjustly happened in Pharaoh's house. And now, like, sometimes we complain about, like, an hour or a day or a week of displeasure. Joseph has now been, like, served a cup full of injustice for years. For years. I mean, can you imagine what he must have thought of? And so, in essence, the story providentially, of the word for God's sovereignty, happens that Pharaoh has a dream, and his dream is that there's kind of like these cows and there's this river and it all goes kind of kapooey. And he's asking, Pharaoh's asking all of his sorcerers and magicians and counselors, interpret the dream and no one can do it. And then what happens? The cupbearer is like, wait a second. This sounds awfully familiar. And so he tells Pharaoh, hey, there's this guy, crazy enough. But he kind of helped me that one time when you were kind of mad at me, helped a brother out, and I think he could help, right? 
And so Pharaoh brings him in, right? And Joseph says, hey, you have two dreams. They're actually the same dream. Here's what it means. Uh, you're going to have seven years. We're going to be killing them. We're going to be crushing them. We're going to have all this food, all the grain, great harvest, but it's going to be followed by seven years of droughts. So Pharaoh says, what shall we do? Joseph's like, well, you need to find one man and put him in charge to take a tenth of all grain for the next seven years, store it up, so that way we have grain during the seven years of drought. Providentially, right? There's a great song I should put on the Facebook page for you all to listen. It's all about this story of Joseph. And um, it's kind of like, oh, Joe. Anyways, great song. But Pharaoh says, you're the man, Joseph. Literally, the story from Rags to Riches. You're in prison. Now you're literally the top person in Egypt other than Pharaoh. Right? Other than Pharaoh. God is sovereignly using all of his suffering, all of his misery for a reason. Because here's the thing. Um, typically, weather is pretty like widespread, right? I'm not saying that the same kind of weather on the East Coast is going to be similar to, you know, the weather, you know, in Washington. But there is a sense in which a couple of years ago, California had a really, you know, bad drought. And I don't know if you remember the summer of 2015, Washington went a long time without any rain. Everything turned brown. That was the year where they destroyed Kennedale Park by not watering it, right? Still sad about that. Still sad about that, right? Right? And so it's kind of like droughts happen over a region, kind of, right? And so what happens is this drought, famine, spreads out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. And what is in Canaan? Yeah, all of Joseph's family. Now, I haven't done the best job at, at kind of keeping the whole storyline of Genesis together, but let me just kind of refresh our memories for a second, okay? So, in the very beginning, we have a God who creates everything. And he takes what is disorderly and he makes it into something that is good. In fact, something very good. And in this creation, he does something really unique. He makes image bearers. And he tells them to go and make culture. To go and make things. To go, in essence, be his representatives on earth. Harness the raw potential of creation and build cities and communities and flourish and be fruitful and multiply. And Adam is given a job to name all the animals and to harvest all the fruit of the garden. And he's given a helper to help him in this task. But really quickly in the story, we see a serpent come and kind of trick the woman into thinking that God's commands are bad and that God's holding out. And so they give in to thinking that God is really hiding from them kind of not having their best intentions in mind. And they eat of the fruit. And sin enters the world. And with sin, right after the fall, we see a story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. And out of this, we see just dysfunction after dysfunction after dysfunction, which leads God to having an aquatic holocaust, as we call it, the flood where he kept a remnant alive. Because if you remember, God's promise right after sin entered the world is that through the seed of the woman, God was going to 
restore. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. So in essence, the whole story of Genesis is about this, how God is faithful to preserve a remnant of faithful people even when humanity continues to war against him. And so God keeps a remnant alive, a seed of the woman, and they begin to multiply again, and they begin to kind of go down the same trajectory, but then God chooses a random pagan Canaanite guy named Abram, and he makes a covenant with him and a commitment and a promise, and says, through your seed, Abram, your nation is going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so we see then this little family grow. Abram has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And so we see Jacob then take the mantle and begin to unfold this promise that God has given way back to the woman in the garden that through your seed, now through this family, I will save all the people of the earth. But what happens? when a famine jeopardizes to kill off that remnant, that promise that God sends someone ahead of them, Joseph. And so with all of that said, Joseph is living large. He's collecting things. The drought has happened. And he's sitting there one day. I, love, I really love how the movie shows it because he's sitting there on his little throne. There's a long line of people. And he stands up. And he sees his brothers. Think for a second. Imagine if you were Joseph and your brothers threw you into a pit and they sold you into slavery and you suffered all of that injustice, all of the whips and lashes that a slave would have had and he sees his brothers for the first time. Can you imagine how visceral of a response would have been in Joseph's heart. And so Joseph has a test for his brothers. And he kind of wants to see if they repented, if they've changed. It's been probably 20 years, right? And so he kind of says, you guys want grain? Well, I think you're spies. And he gets all this information out of them. He kind of maybe looks Egyptian now, maybe has all this stuff on and makeup on. They can't recognize him. It's been 20 years. Do that what you want. But in essence, he takes one of the brothers, he takes Simeon, and he tells the other brothers, go back, get your other brother, Benjamin, and when you come back, I'll release to you your other brother in order that you can prove that you're not lying. And what Joseph is really trying to do is trying to show whether or not his brothers are going to be faithful when they weren't faithful to him. Now, really quick, before we really jump into some of the practical things I want to bring out in this story, is um, Joseph's brothers don't have a good trajectory of telling the truth, of being honest, of being good people. We didn't quite read the story, but we talked about the story of Judah and Tamar. Do you guys remember that story a little bit I talked about? Judah is kind of a loser. He um, had a few sons, and his son married a woman, and his son died, and he gave his other son to this woman, and he died. And instead of understanding that his sons were just lame and God punished them because they were wicked, he blames the woman. So she dresses up, Tamar, as a prostitute, kind of hides her identity. He sleeps with her, impregnates her, finds out that she's pregnant, says, burn her. 
And then she kind of exposes by having his rod and his seal that you're the father. And he's like, oh, gosh. Confesses his sin. So Judah really is a picture of someone who's not the greatest. But the future line of all the kings of Israel has a redeeming moment. And so that's where I want to pick up our story. Sorry, I know there's a lot of context but it's kind of a story. It's a long story. So we're going to pick up a little bit. I'm going to make a few observations out of Genesis 43. And next week we'll talk a little bit more about the three points I gave earlier. So look down with me at chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. So here's what happened. Joseph sees his brothers, takes Simeon, says, you um, can't get your brother back until you bring your other brother with me. And so he sends them with food, but here's what he also does. He takes the money that they had and he puts it secretly back in their, into their kind of like food storage and they get back home and they realize, well, all of our money is still here. And so they're kind of like, what to do? And they tell Jacob, hey, Jacob, uh, they have Simeon. We can't go back until, unless we take Benjamin. And so um, Jacob's like, absolutely not. Joseph died. I will not have Benjamin died. Joseph is my favorite. Benjamin is my new favorite. It ain't happening. And so he kind of stalls. And his first line of defense is, as a bad leader would, why don't we just go try to buy a little bit of food from Egypt? As if to say, more or less, if we kind of just sneakily kind of go in there and just buy a little bit of food and not a lot of food, maybe they won't notice us. Now, what does Jacob's name mean again? Deceiver. He is always coming up with schemes. He's always trying to get out of the issue. He is someone you would never want to lead your family, but unfortunately leads this family. So let's read on a little bit more. Verse 3. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully. I want to say something there, but we'll go on. The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we have told him was to answer these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to, his, to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will rise, arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we have not delayed, we would, not, we would now have returned twice. So what I want to do here is I want to talk a little bit about Jacob, and I want to talk about Judah, okay? So kind of what do we learn a little bit from this story, okay? God is sovereign, and what I mean by that, I mean, I, don't, I wonder if you guys think about the words we sing. You are sovereign over us. Kind of, the verses of that song are really great. But in essence, when we talk about God's sovereignty, 
we realize that he is in control, that his plan cannot be thwarted, that the author has authority. And if that is true, here's what that means for us. We can trust him, that he has our good in mind. But do you, do you understand Jacob here and his hesitancy? Let me just tell you a few things of why Jacob is not a good example here. Okay? So, um, as a leader, here's one thing that you should never do. Pretend like your problem doesn't exist. I think there's an animal when anytime they're like in danger, they just freeze. What's that, possum? Lays dead. Lays dead, yeah, right? Possum plays dead, just rolls over or whatever. Um, that's in essence what Jacob does here. He just like, they come back, hey bro, dad, they have Simeon, we have to go back. He's like, no, it's all right. Dad, are you kidding me right now? Even What does Judah say there? He's like in verse 10. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. He said, dude, stop freaking dragging your feet. Make a decision here, right? And so Jacob also, I mentioned already a little, earlier is that he's kind of scheming a plan, right? He's kind of like, well, why don't we just buy a little bit of food? Look what Judah says. Dude, are you kidding me? Verse 3, the man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So he's trying to tell his dad, like, dude, stop trying to come up with a plan or a scheme to get out of this. This is what we have to do. Now, here is something that's really interesting. When people are confronted with a really hard choice, here's what they typically try to do. Push it onto other people. If you are someone who sometimes gets confronted with something that you did wrong, a lot of times there's a tendency to want to blame other people, right? When we get a C in a class, it's never our fault, right? It's the teacher, Right? They don't teach well. They're not good. They don't do their job. So this is exactly what Jacob does. Look down what he says here. Um, look at verse 6. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Do you know what he's kind of saying there? Why didn't you just lie like me? Why do you... It's like... Someone's telling you a really bad story. You know, like imagine Tyler Jones. He's going to um, the gas station and um, he's getting gas in his car and he walks in and he gets, um, you know, a soda while the car is pumping gas. And while he was doing that, someone, you know, went in his car, took his phone, grabbed all of his stuff, and he's telling me the story. And I tell him, like, well, dude, why are you so dumb as to leave your car unoccupied? Do you see how that, that doesn't help? And it actually, is it really Tyler's fault that someone decided to do a really harmful thing against him? No, it is not Tyler's fault, right? And so Jacob here is kind of like blame shifting, dragging his feet, scheming. And let me tell you why. When you have an established past with people, who have let you down, it is really hard to learn how to trust them again. Experience tells us things. 
that if this person hurts me, or if this person has lied to me, or if this person has broken confidence, that I should not trust them again. Right? If, if a friend is something really hurtful to you, I guarantee you that your new posture towards that person is to keep him at a distance. I mean, the brothers came back the first time with Egypt without a brother and with all the money they still had. I mean, Jacob, for all he knows, he could think that maybe his son sold Simeon into slavery and kept all the money. He has no reasons to trust his sons. What should our posture be to people who have at one point broken our trust? Who have done things who have hurt us? You know, Paul would write a really small letter in the New Testament to a guy named Onesimus about a slave named Philemon. Anyone know this story a little bit? Philemon was a slave owned by Onesimus, and he ran away. And when he ran away, he became a Christian. And he got discipled by Paul. And so Paul writes to Onesimus telling him, saying, hey, receive Philemon back like a brother. And do you know what Paul's trying to tell us in that little story? That when people repent and when people change, we need to stop looking at their past and begin to see that the Lord has a work in them. Can I, can I just be honest? Like Sometimes like, it is really hard when I see especially young people make a lot of dumb decisions and then say maybe I run into them five, six years later and there's been a lot of maturity and a lot of growth, I still have a hard time forgetting about the stuff they used to do. And I think we do that a lot. We, 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 we think that people never change. And I'm, I'm not trying to say, like, just be completely wide open. If someone breaks your heart ten times, you know, what's like the old adage, right? You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? We kind of learned, like, hey, two times and no more. But here's what I just want to give this one principle. If people are showing an attitude and a spirit of repentance, we need to learn. Because that's exactly what we see in Judah. Look down with me at Judah. So Judah, again, was a far cry from a good brother. He is not the oldest, right? He was someone who did all those horrible things with Tamar. But look at the kind of repentance that is seen with Judah. If you look down... At verse 8, Judah said to Israel's father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we have not delayed, we would now have returned twice. See, Judah is having a whole different shift. Do you remember when his brothers took him and threw him into the pit? Whose idea was it to not kill him, but to get some money by selling him to slavery? Judah. Are you, any of you guys like Lord of the Rings fans? Blake, big smile on his face, right? 
right? What I love about Lord of the Rings, especially the last movie, I read some of the book, is um, the picture of what a good king looks like. What does a good king look like? Is it someone who just indulges himself with the taxes of the people and lives a nice, cush life? Away from harm, sends other people's sons and daughters to war while he sits back in his castle with the finest wine and meat? But a good king, what does he do? Sacrifices his own self for others. And we know that it's through the line of Judah we one day see the king's of Israel, right? And this is exactly what Judah is doing. He is kind of making the shift, right? Where once he took advantage, he exploited his brother for money. He is now in repentance, has a changed man saying, I will take all the blame. I will be the person who I will stand in front in case anyone tries to hurt Benjamin. And next week we'll kind of see that it kind of comes down to that, where Judah takes the leadership role amongst all the brothers. But do me a quick favor. Keep your finger on Genesis 43 and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We talked about this verse that I'm about to read um, at winter camp this year. John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, I call this verse the gospel in a nutshell. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Greater love is no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. You see the change that happened in Judah? What is a true brother supposed to do? A true brother is someone who says, I will put my life down for you. Now, earlier in the story of Joseph, we see his brothers do the exact opposite. But now Judah is telling his father, hey, I will lay down my life Benjamin. You guys know the story of the prodigal son? Maybe the, the, the story of the two lost sons, maybe? And so you have the story of, a, of a, a rebellious younger brother, and he goes out and he squanders his dad's inheritance, and he drinks it up and scorns it with prostitutes, and he comes back, and his father says, kill the calf, give him the ring, embraces the son, but the older brother wouldn't come back to the party. And the dad comes out to the party and says, son, please come rejoice. Your brother was lost, but now he is found. And the story ends kind of on an ominous note where the older brother wouldn't come into the feast and celebrate. I always think about that story. What does a true older brother do? A true older brother says, hey, dad, I need to leave. And I got to go find my brother. And I'm going to rescue him. And I'm going to bring him back. But instead, this older brother and the prodigal son sits there and says, well, I've never done anything against you. I should receive all the blessing, but you've never done this for me, right? 
And in essence, what we see, the picture of Christ in this story, is that he is truly the older brother that we all need who comes down to heaven to save us. Joseph is the perfect type, the shadow, the figure of Christ that we all need, that God is sovereign, we need to be saved, and he provides a savior. And so Judah here shows repentance. And guys, can I just tell you, a true friend is not looking about what can I get from you, but what can I give to you? Friends are really tricky in high school. I get that. Friends are hard and they're meaningful and, and they're good and we, we should desire them. And some of us desire friends too much. But let me just tell you, no greater love is this than someone who lays down their life. And so I think in this story, what, some of the takeaways we can take from, from the story of Judah is be someone who lives a sacrificial life for others. Do not live to exploit others. Do not live as if you think that other humans exist for your glory and for your pleasure. A lot of times in our struggles with, with lust and comparing and popularity is that we literally think that this person made in the image of God was made for my pleasure and for my glory, when in fact they were not. They were made for God's glory. And so last thing I want to show us is at the end of 43. Jacob um, hesitantly releases Benjamin and the rest of the brothers. They go down. They see Joseph. Joseph brings them into the house. He lines them up in order. gives them this great feast. And do me a favor. Go ahead and look at verse 26 of 43. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the presents that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Look at this. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, said, Serve the food. Two things I want to bring out of this really quick. I mean, again, there's so much I want to say here, but I have to be brief. First thing is this, the brothers could not save themselves. They were at the mercy of Joseph. Now, here's the thing. Jacob, again, is a deceiver. He says, hey, let's bring some presents to, to kind of appease this man. And so literally, it says that they brought some pistachio nuts to try to, because they didn't have that in Egypt. They probably had in the land of Canaan. Here's some pistachio nuts we brought you. Maybe this will... You know, and, and here's some extra money, right? Kind of like money can solve all problems. Kind of something we believe a little bit. So they bring pistachio nuts and money. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think Joseph setting up this test with his brothers is so that he can get more money and some pistachio nuts? Some people might look at the story of Joseph and think, man, isn't this kind of cruel 
to make your brothers go through this? But really what Joseph is trying to do is he's trying to see whether or not his brothers have truly changed. And I, what I like about the, this emotion that Joseph shows is that, I mean, he's having this visceral emotion and he's, he's about to cry. You know that feeling where you know you're going to cry and you have that lump in your throat and you, you just know you got to get away before you start breaking down in front of anyone else, right? I'm not, I'm not with anyone else. Even TJ agrees. Nice. All right. Yeah. I feel like so Joseph, he, but he controls his emotions. He goes, he weeps, washes his face, gets all the makeup, the act back on in order that he can control the test to go on. Now, let me say a few things. The brothers symbolize the fact that we cannot save ourselves, that we are reliant on God to save us. Someone who says to God, hey, God, I've done all these things for you. I've obeyed. I've been a good person. Looks just like me trying to bring pistachio nuts to God and saying, is this good? Because here's the thing, guys. God does not want your superficial obedience. He wants your heart. And that's exactly what Joseph did. And let me just say a few things. Discipline should always be a hard thing to do. I mean, Joseph could have just immediately said, hey, guys, it's me. What's up? You know, you know, like, um, I don't know if you've had parents who disciplined you and they've said the words, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Has anyone heard that, heard that from their parents? I heard that, and I thought that was the craziest thing ever until I had to discipline my own children. As a matter of fact, if discipline ever makes you feel better, you're not doing it right. Discipline is hard. It's never a good thing to do. But Joseph here illustrates perfectly God's discipline towards us. He doesn't like that we have to go through hard things. But because he loves us, he sends us through it. So there are a lot of things here, but here's just a few takeaways. Here are a few takeaways. When we do not trust God that he is sovereign, we end up being like Jacob going back to scheming in our own ways, lying, blame-shifting, wasting time. But in repentance and in humility, we need to learn to be like Christ who gives up his life for others. And ultimately, we need to see that it is only by grace can we be saved and not by bringing our things to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this portion of your word. I pray, Father that you would um, give us faith, God, to believe all the things you've said, that you are in control, that you love us, and that you are for us. God, be praised in our worship and in our time of small group. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.